Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing How's well. Life? I'm doing oh, well, Stuart. My cat's Stuart. trying to escape. Uh, Paul, are you there too? <laughs> we might as well jump right into that. Yeah. So, of course, the, those are my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart yeah. Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. I'm Dr. And this Mac- is an internal medicine podcast. <laughs> That's right. What do we do on this podcast? I do wonder sometimes. <laughs> Paul, what do we do on this podcast? So, we use expert interviews to bring clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge to you, the listener. Thank you, Paul. And and uh, on this on this episode, we have quite a bit of practice changing knowledge. I have to imagine uh, we are joined <laughs> we're joined by correspondent Dr. Leah Witt, and our guest is Dr. Eric Wadera. On this episode, we are talking about the American Geriatric Society Choosing Wisely campaign, which is ten things that they put out most recently updated in 2015 basically things that are not high value care and uh that people should in general stop doing and we talk about a bunch of those on this episode mainly related to treating dementia treating behavior problems in dementia and a little bit about feeding in patients with dementia towards the end of life particularly tube feeding i think it'll be really helpful for your practice as i was saying our guest Dr. Eric Wadera is a clinician educator in the Division of Geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. He is the director of the Hospice and Palliative Care Services at San Francisco VA Medical Center and program director for the Geriatrics Fellowship at UCSF. You can check out an article. If you Google search his name, one of the first articles that pops up, it says, Top 10 Reasons Eric Wadera is the Best Fellowship Director Ever. It's pretty. It's a pretty entertaining read. It's a quick read, um, but it'll give you a sense of why he's so well-liked, uh, in addition to uh, what you'll hear on this show. He is also the co-founder of Jerry Powell, which is a geriatrics and palliative care blog and podcast, as well as ePrognosis, an online set of prognostic calculators for the elderly. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Eric Wadera. Matt, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot what we're doing. That's right. I'm supposed to come up with a pun. I had a really good one. I I, highly uh, doubt that. I forgot it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, Paul, I guess we got lucky tonight. (laughs) (laughs) You dodged a bullet. Okay. Here with us tonight are two wonderful guests. The first one I'll introduce is our correspondent. First time on air here is Dr. Leah Witt. Hi, Leah. Hi. We've been planning this episode and some other ones you're going to be on uh, for a long time, so it's good to finally have you on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited to bring this episode to you. And a great guest. Uh, we had You gave us the inside scoop on a great guest here. So Dr. Eric Wadera of UCSF, he is a geriatrician, also known for Jerry Powell. Hi, Dr. Wadera. Hi. I, I think this is like a a radio show, long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like it. 
And uh, we've we've agreed ahead of time we're going to call you Eric for, uh, I guess, to keep it informal like usual. And uh, so this is the part of the show where we kind of just get to know, actually, we're going to get to know both of you a little bit here. So let's let's do ladies first. Uh, Leah, can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself? Sure, I'd love to. So I'm a 32-year-old geriatrics fellow here at UCSF, a former pulmonary medicine fellow and internal medicine resident at the University of Chicago. I'm really interested in aging, chronic lung disease, and I did a postdoc research project on frailty and geriatric syndromes in patients admitted and readmitted with COPD. And I'm a native Wisconsinite. The Packers were terrible this year, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, podcast addict um, and yoga body pump aficionado. <laughs> Uh, Paul, do you think we should make her explain the body pump thing now, or <laughs> no? I would just yoga while body pumping. <laughs> no, you do you do yoga to recover from body pump. <laughs> okay, we're. Uh, why don't you? I think the audience needs to know at least a little bit about body pump before they won't be able to concentrate on the rest of the show if you don't just get it out now. I think that's fair. I think it's a good wellness activity for any physician to incorporate into their routine. But the biggest barrier is to find a gym that subscribes to Les Mills in her amazing uh, group of classes, including body flow and body combat. But I think body pumps the best. You do time, you do weightlifting choreographed to music. What's better than that? I So many things. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm glad that it's working for you. <laughs> Well, Eric, if you can if you can follow that, could you give the audience a one liner about yourself? Oh, I, I can't follow that. I'm just going to keep a short one liner for me. Uh, a 42 year old blogger, podcaster who occasionally dabbles in geriatrics and palliative care, father of a nine year old, and uh, yeah, I'm going to end with that. <laughs> okay, Eric, i i have to I have to maybe embarrass you a little bit. Uh, so. Uh. I was I was telling Leah about this yesterday. Uh, it's I've mentioned on the show that I have an interest in geriatrics. I actually was I went full on. I applied to geriatrics fellowships. I was supposed to start this academic year at a geriatrics fellowship, and at the last minute, I decided that the curbsider was was going to be my own kind of like general internal medicine social media fellowship, and I. I did not do the geriatrics fellowship, but there was a time after, I think I heard you lecture on Audio Digest, and then I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, you know, I want to do this geriatrics fellowship. I think we should go to UCSF. And I, I agree. <laughs> I, I think you should come here next year. We're going to hold a spot for you. Yeah, I was so... <laughs> and you can continue curbside and yeah. podcast. I got all the equipment here for you. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. And she she promptly shot me down. She's like, oh, yeah, let's move to a city that we can't afford with our four children with no family support. And uh, that sounds like a great idea for me. So now I'm in Pennsylvania and uh, I'm, I'm working as an attending. And but I uh, geriatrics and palliative care are a huge interest of mine. So that's that's why we're so happy to be doing this show. Well, I, I always love your podcast. I've pretty much listened to every one, and the geriatric content on it is spot on. So good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, hopefully we will we will bring some more great geriatric content tonight. But first, uh, Paul, I, I'm sure you have questions. Oh, sure. Sorry, that was <laughs> nice. Yes, so many questions. Let me just think hard about the questions I have. So I, I guess in terms of an icebreaker, I'll ask um, for each of you, actually, do, is there a book that you feel like every physician should read? And it doesn't even necessarily have to be a book about medicine as such. 
Um, so the book that I read over the holidays was Extreme Measures by Jessica Zitter. We were really lucky because she is in our area and she just gave grand rounds. Um, and she's a palliative care and critical care physician, which is close to my heart given my previous fellowship. Uh, and she touches on some of what we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast, but our emotional connection to food and um, how families and doctors really struggle with when when their loved one can no longer eat and what does that mean for caring for them and loving them. So I really recommend that book. Is, is that extreme measures? Was, is, was there a Harrison Ford movie with that uh, same title? I don't know. <laughs> that, <laughs> I, that sounds, that sounds right. Probably. Maybe it's unrelated. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm sure it was a, a film based on the novel. <laughs> Maybe there is. It's called Extremis. There is. Uh, so Jessica Zitter, she actually went to the Academy Awards. We actually had her on our podcast, uh, so we had to ask her. Unfortunately, I asked her uh, who or what did you wear, and the answer is who did you, or the question is who did you wear when somebody goes to the Academy Awards. <laughs> Obviously, so I failed my uh, interviewing duties. Yeah, it's a short documentary. Yeah, but. Eric, I would be proud that you didn't know how to properly ask that question, actually. <laughs> All right. But Eric, a book recommendation from you. What do you have for us? Uh, I uh, We just did a book club on Daniel Pink's Drive, um, and it is absolutely a great book, uh, great for any physician, and more importantly, if you're a parent. And if you're like me, I'm a big you know carrot and stick parent, like you do this or this is going to happen. And weird, it doesn't work. Uh, so this kind of made me rethink about how we increase internal motivation, uh, which is about improving autonomy, purpose, and mastery over things. And it just, it's great if you're a medical teacher. It's great if you're a parent. And it just, most of the stuff you kind of already know, but it just solidifies it. Um, and I, I've done different things. Like I no longer connect like my nine-year-old's uh, uh, weekly allowance to him doing chores. Mm. This sounds haunting like the tenets of adult learning theory, actually. This <laughs> yes. internal motivation and yeah. Uh, I, I'm always looking for ways to subtly, um, you know, manipulate my children. So I think I should read this book. <laughs> it's, it's great. And it's great for demotivating because you know, if, if you just use the carrot and stick in reverse for things you don't want them to do, like pay them to do something you don't want to do and stop paying them two weeks ago, two weeks later they're just never going to do it again. Oh, it, this is it's, brilliant. It's great. This is getting bumped way up on my reading list now. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, next question I wanted to ask is, uh, Eric, any favorite medical app? Uh, it could be related to geriatrics or palliative care if you have one for the audience. I was ready for this, listen to a lot of podcasts, and I don't use a lot of medical apps. The one I do is Twitter. I love the Twitter app or just using Twitter to actually find really interesting articles, podcasts, people to actually follow and listen to. So mine would just be like getting on Twitter and following, like for me, hashtag HPM for hashtag hospice and palliative medicine or hashtag geriatrics. Uh, those would be the ones that I love the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to keep up with the literature. Yeah. That, that community seems to be, cause I, I've, I've followed you on Twitter and some of the other people in the hashtag HPM uh, circle, and they seem to be pretty active on Twitter. Yeah. Nephrology, very active. Palliative medicine, very active. We're trying to get geriatrics more active. Um, so there's, there's some great little communities on it. Yes. Paul, any other questions here? Or Leah, did you want to ask Eric any questions that, you know, 
You haven't had a chance um, to ask him? Oh, wow. This is really exciting. I feel so powerful. Um, well, I'm always asking Eric for advice. I'll ask him what advice he's gotten that's been really useful, either probably as a learner. What kind of advice would you give me, a fellow? Yeah. Uh, the one advice that I got most frequently from the people I admire the most is, like I would talk about their careers and they would say, oh, don't do what I did. Uh, and they always have this really curvy path to where they got to. So like that don't do what I do, like do exactly what they did. Like, <laughs> do things like podcasts, do things that are fun, that are interesting, that take you in new directions. Um, and uh, if it's not fun, if you don't like it, just stop it. Uh, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people about like social media and getting on blogs or getting on podcasts and they come up with these huge pans that take like six months to, to start, like just try it. And if you don't like it, stop it, but, um, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to try something new and don't be afraid to take that curvy path because those are the ones, at least for me are the most fun. Right. Right. All right, Leah, did you did you want to give a pick of the week or was the uh, body pump fitness your pick of the week? That, that's a pick of the year. <laughs> but um, my pick of the week would be I just saw I, Tanya. Uh, highly recommend it as a child of the 90s. It really reshaped how I think about the Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan story as more of a class, class warfare kind of story. So I highly recommend it. I uh, I don't know. I still think I have like PTSD from that whole thing when I was a kid. I was so disturbed by it for some reason. Or maybe not for some reason. It was probably a good reason. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty straightforward why it was disturbing. <laughs> Ever She's since I heard that story, I thought ice skates were really, really sharp. <laughs> <laughs> She's not necessarily a sympathetic character. Uh, I think they do a pretty good job of showing many of her flaws, but you might think about it a little bit differently. Eric, did you want to give a pick of the week? Dark on Netflix. So uh, it's a German uh, Netflix series. So they have a subtitle one and they have one that's kind of like an old Japanese Godzilla movie where <laughs> they talk over it. But really great series. Makes lots of nods to one of my favorite movies ever, Donnie Darko. If you're a Donnie Darko fan, you're going to like Dark. Ooh, that's a good one. Donnie Darko is a good movie too. Yeah, yeah. I've it. A lot of people haven't seen it, but yeah. tons of nods to Donnie Darko and Dark. Hmm. I'm a I'm a big fan of Donnie Darko. I think the soundtrack to the movie and just a lot of the visuals are are why I like it the most. And yeah. you'll notice in this Netflix series a lot of the soundtrack also on this, okay. especially when like the high school scenes. I remember watching Donnie Darko when I was a freshman in college. Uh, oh. yeah, that's probably about right for me too. Paul, did you have a pick of the week? <laughs> I've also seen Donnie Darko. Um, but <laughs> Never seen it. <laughs> oh. Yeah, the Tears for Fears montage is fantastic. It's mm -hmm. the only thing I remember about it. Um, I, and by the way, let me just point out, these picks of the week are spectacular, by the way. <laughs> I am duly impressed by our guests. Thank you. Um, I'm going to recommend, actually, another Netflix series. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Wormwood, the Errol Morris documentary. No. no. This may not ring any bells, but Errol Morris is a, a famous documentarian. He did The Thin Blue Line. Um, I want to say it was back in the late 80s. It was groundbreaking at the time. And this documentary also does these sort of scrupulous... Um, almost kind of impressionistic reenactments and actually has like legit actors like Peter Skarsgård um, and let's see, and Jenny, Jimmy Simpson also. But basically it's about this 
former CIA agent who uh, basically was covertly dosed by LSD by the CIA as part of Project MK Ultra, and fell from a hotel window to his death. And the whole thing's an examination of whether this was a murder, it was a suicide, and basically this guy's son's sort of pursuit of the truth and how his son's pursuit has kind of um, sort of colored his worldview. It's a fascinating, fascinating documentary that has better cinematography than most documentaries have any right to have. Um, the reenactments are spectacular. The whole thing's really great. So it's, again, if you have about six hours to burn, I would recommend <laughs> Wormwood. I, uh, I probably won't watch that if it's six hours, but that does sound like a good story. Um, Stuart, if you have a real quick one, cause we're, it's probably about no, time good. we move on to, okay. So I'm going to save this one for next week. Okay. So let's, let's move into the, the topic at hand here. We're going to go over, uh, the Choosing Wisely campaign from the American Geriatric Society. But Leah, did you want to start us out with a case? Yes, I'd love to. So we have Ms. Mrs. Sarah Quill here at our <laughs> Cashlack Clinic today. Um, so Mrs. Quill, she's an 82-year-old female with hypertension, coronary artery disease. She's had TIAs, and she's got newly diagnosed mild dementia. She's here with her son, Mr. Haldahl. Uh, <laughs> So he brought her in to discuss his concerns about progressive dementia. She was just seen for a memory evaluation in the Cashlack Neurology Clinic and diagnosed with likely Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. She lives alone, but her son checks on her every day and brings her food. She was previously a gourmet chef, but she's been burning food, leaving the stove on and forgetting to take her medications. She's supposed to take atorvastatin, lisinopril, and clopidogrel. At the neurology visit three months ago, she was started on denepazil, five milligrams daily. So I'll start by asking Dr. Wadera, how would you approach this patient? What questions would you ask? Yeah, so um, it is always shocking when even this, this person who goes to a neurology clinic, not making the assumption that either the, the patient or the family member or the caregiver actually knows the diagnosis that we're talking about here. Even it, when it's posed or disclosed to individuals, sometimes euphemisms are made uh, to try to, you know, soften the blow. Sometimes we just use a lot of medical jargon around this. And especially when I, I hear like likely or possible Alzheimer's disease, like what, what do patients and family members actually take home from that? So the very first thing I, I'd want to hear is like this is a this is a delivery of serious news visit. That that's my main goal is what what did they talk about during that last visit? What their what's their understanding of the diagnosis that was made? Um, inviting them to actually talk about kind of what I'm thinking is going on and then delivering that knowledge. So that the framework that I always think about, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of spikes before, kind of an old framework for delivering bad news. No. So spikes is just a, a mnemonic. So S, just thinking about the setting that you're in, um, making sure everybody who needs to be there is there. And especially when we're thinking about dementia, like family members and caregivers, th they need to be involved early on because they're the ones who are going to do the heavy lifting here in addition to the patient. Uh, so that's S. P is perception. Always start off. Instead of us telling them what's going on, let's hear from them. It's kind of like a a needs assessment. We're trying to figure out how much do they know? What areas do we need to help them with? I is invitation. Ask them if it's okay if we talk about kind of what we think is going on. If they're not ready to hear it, they're not ready to hear it. Don't, don't push it. If they are, now they have some control over this conversation. 
knowledge, just delivering knowledge. And when we're talking about dementia or Alzheimer's disease, making sure that we, we are using that word, we're not using any euphemisms. Um, and that just like when we're delivering something like somebody has cancer is expect that the, the next thing that they're going to be doing is going to be having an emotional response to that. So that's the E is address emotions. So we're going to address emotions. We're not going to go straight into a cognitive describing what dementia is, but like, wow, like they just got this life altering diagnosis. How are they dealing with this? And the last is the summarize and plan for next steps. Um, that's the last S. So that's kind of where I would, would be with this person is just figure out what do they understand about what's going on here? Um, and then we move from there and to start thinking about, you know, next steps as far as what's their understanding as far as how this disease progresses? What's their understanding of, for instance, like therapies? Um, she was started on Aricept 5 uh, milligrams. What's their understanding of the effectiveness of these therapies? And this may seem like a silly question, but I, whoever wrote this case, this is, I mean, I've kind of crossed this a million times. And Lots I feel of like dolls and... Yeah, yeah. No, specifically those names. We should probably change them for HIPAA purposes. But, um, but no, but, but I mean, you tend to, at least it's, it's this exact same scenario. Someone's brought in by their family member or caregiver because they're concerned. And basically, I know my inclination, I think almost because it's easier, is to actually turn towards the caregiver and have a conversation with them. Because I feel like yeah. there's often a lot of denial on the part of the patient, a lot of resistance to the diagnosis. I wonder how you how you bring the patient uh, and do the less cowardly thing than what I do, where I just sort of almost ignore the patient in the room and focus on the caregiver because it's just so much easier to do. How do you draw the patient into this conversation as well? Yeah, I think I mean I think the the key is is that there is an emotional reaction to this diagnosis, just like there's an emotional reaction to any serious diagnosis that we give people is to spend some time acknowledging that. Acknowledge the anger that people feel around this diagnosis. Acknowledge the grief, the sadness, the loss, whatever you think this that's going on with this individual. So for example, if they're getting really angry that that this neurologist diagnosed them with this, this disease, take a couple of minutes and just explore that anger. Just naming that anger actually gives them a little bit of control over it if they can name it, it's even better. So if they say, of course I'm angry, that's what we want. Now they have some control over it. Now we can actually talk about other subjects that they may not have wanted to if we didn't address emotions first. Mm -hmm. I think it can be helpful in the room to talk to the patient um, with the caregiver next to the patient um, and try to include them kind of in a tripod conversation. But it can also be helpful to have some one-on-one -on -one time with the caregiver. Uh, to get to, you know, kind of in a little, a little bit deeper into that conversation. Um, so perhaps the patient can meet with a social worker or another me member of your care team while you're going through that conversation. That's a good idea. I like that. Be like, yeah, my nurse is going to recheck your blood pressure and I'm going to stay here and have a conversation with this, uh, what are they? It's some the informant or whatever they call. There's I know there's a term. There's terminology. <laughs> Probably not use that term. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the rats. Yes. <laughs> All right. So of course, of course, uh, Mr. Dahl is going to want to know about medications to to help out his mom here, and uh, the fur one of the one of the geriatric choosing wisely. So I'll read it verbatim. Number six here. Don't prescribe cholinesterase cholinesterase inhibitors for dementia without periodic assessment for perceived cognitive benefits and adverse gastrointestinal side effects. 
Eric, can you kind of uh, let us know what this is getting at? Yeah. So, you know, I would say like five or 10 years ago, there was a healthy debate about do colonized inhibitors actually help? Um, strangely enough, when a lot of, let's say, Aricept went off patent, um, it seems to be less of a lively debate. These medications, when they do work, they don't work a whole lot. And when they don't work, um, they don't work and they can cause some side effects. So, uh, there are some people who are very polarized on this debate, some people who never use it, some people who try it on everyone. I'm, I'm kind of a middle grounder is that uh, when we talk with patients about their effectiveness, talking about how uh, none of the medications we have can actually change the course of this disease, change the underlying reason people are losing their memory and some of their other functions, delay... Um, the progression of the disease, delay death, nothing that we have can do this. These are symptomatic medications that um, may help a little bit with cognition, with function, uh, maybe a tiny bit with behaviors, but that's it. And if people are not noticing a big difference, then also thinking about is it worth continuing these medications because they can they're extra pills. Some of them are costly and they have side effects like weight loss, like uh, nausea, GI distress, um, some for, for some people, vivid uh, dreams. So, again, thinking, do, do they really need to be on this? Mm-hmm. And the side effects are really common. There's a study on adherence and tolerability from 2017 in JAGS. And I think 81% of participants reported adverse events across all the cholinesterase inhibitors. Genepazole is probably the best tolerated, but they also had a lot of discontinuation because of cost. So these, they can be expensive and hard to tolerate. And, and since you brought it up there, the uh, head-to-head the cholinesterase inhibitors, is there, is there any, any one that we should use? Is it just whatever's on formulary for our patients? So there's not a lot of difference uh, between them as far as uh, really evidence-based that, that they're any more effective or have less side effects. Uh, there's one study that shows adherence may be a little bit better with Aricept, mainly because it's cheaper, because uh, it's generic. Um, sorry, that's... Okay. I, I wanted to point out uh, one of the side effects, Eric, I heard you give a lecture on this uh, on another program, which I won't mention. Uh, and uh, no, it was Audio Digest. And you you were talking about pacemakers being placed, but for patients having bradycardia, I'm not sure if that's something that's happened commonly, but I was appalled <laughs> when I heard that. Oh my God, you actually did listen to that. Um, yeah, it's it's shocking. Um I think a really good point is that these uh, medications are associated with bradycardia. And uh, we've actually seen it here where people got a pacemaker instead of actually just turning off the Aricept or the cholinesterase inhibitors. Yeah. Uh, That's horrifying. Yeah. And unfortunately, the the one person that I could think of actually had a complication with the Mm. placement of the pacemaker. This is not a a trivial thing. So. Always keep in your back of the mind when that individual is coming to the ED or on your medicine service or wherever you are and they're bradycardic, take a look at that med list. Don't just look for beta blockers, but look for these medications, especially in those dementia patients. And 
I was looking this up beforehand because we, so we had on Dr. Dukoski, Stephen Dukoski. He's from University of Florida. He's a big uh, researcher in dementia, Alzheimer's disease. And he said that he doesn't really believe the whole falling off a cliff when you just suddenly stop these agents exists. And I, I was looking, there was a randomized trial. It was like Dinepazil or Mamantine and whether they stayed on it or they just abruptly stopped it after having been on it for at least three months. And it looked like the difference in the, um, in the mini mental status exam was like 1.5 points or something like that. And the difference in the, um, the battles BADLS score was out of 60 was a score was about three, something like that. And the, they considered a clinically significant difference on the mini mental out of 30 to be 1.4 or 1.5 and on the battles to be three or above. So like a 5% change on a 30 or 60 point scale. To me, that doesn't sound, you know, by those scales, it's not that impressive. And then, no, and yeah, and, it's not, a, it's definitely not a cliff. If anything, it's like a tiny little bunny hill. I think it's a, so in that, the, the difference between the people who abruptly stopped Donepazil or Mamantine was like on, a, on the mini mental, it was something like 1.5 points uh, if they abruptly stopped it. So I, I don't know. I mean, it might be, it could be like the nocebo. If, I don't know. I can't even, no, Paul, is that nocebo or placebo if you stop it and then you think the person gets worse? I don't know. I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I would I would say that when you think about the effectiveness of these agents at, at when the studies, if you believe the studies, um, there is a statistically significant improvement in function, cognition, and behaviors that is generally like a three point improvement on a 70 point scale. And the debate isn't, is this statistically significant? The debate is, is this clinically significant? Mm-hmm. Right. And what we're seeing is, there's argument on what is clinically significant. Does that meet that measure? But that should give us some reassurance that when we're stopping these medicines, first, it didn't really help that much. So it's not going to really hurt that much if we stop it. I haven't seen these people going off cliffs. Maybe they go off like a tiny little bump on these very in-depth scales when we test them. Um, But I, I don't see those those big decreases. Right. Okay. I think we've put that to rest. Leah, where did you want to take this next? Did you have a, on this topic here? Yes. Oh, I'll, I can move on with the case. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that we should also think about, like there are other formulations out there. I want to go back to your question, like which one is the best to use? Choose the one that's cheaper. And even with Aricept, these drug companies are really good at trying to, increase profits. So there's there's also like Aricept 23. Have you heard of that before? No, no. It's, it's great. So you take yeah, a, a now a generic drug, uh, which could have then been Aricept 20. And any pharmacist can just give you know two pills of 10, a generic drug for pennies. But you add an additional three milligrams, all of a sudden you have uh, the potential for another blockbuster. So 23, nobody can do like a substitute. Yeah. So you have this heiress of 23, and I'm sure no scientists are saying, oh, these extra three milligrams, they're, they're really what we need on top of 20. <laughs> that's, that's, what missing. Missing. We that's, yeah, that's what was missing. That's what was missing. And what we see is it, it really doesn't help that much, and it's associated with a boatload more of side effects. Uh-huh. So when we're thinking about like Aricept 23, just don't use it. 
And if you're thinking like somebody's no longer swallowing, should we use like the patches, which could be more expensive? Also think, does this person still need to be on this drug? If they're not swallowing anymore from their dementia, odds are these medications are not actually going to help anymore. Okay. Yeah, I think as we're critically thinking about these medications, it's really important to look at funding sources for a lot of these studies because a lot of the studies are pharma-sponsored. And some of the clinically significant, uh, the outcomes that focus on clinically significant outcomes, such as um, time to entering into an institution, um, there really hasn't been good data that any of the cholinesterase inhibitors slow the time to, to nursing home living. Yeah. And, and memantine, another one that's frequently used, like none of these cholinesterol inhibitors, memantine, they just don't work for mild cognitive impairment. So like that pre-dementia phase. Memantine really has only shown benefit for people with moderate to severe dementia. And I think the other is when people say severe dementia, they don't mean like hospice severe. They mean like a mini mental of five or 10. Like mm-hmm. these people are still talking, still chatting away with you. <laughs> they They have more severe disease, but they're not. They're not those people who are no longer swallowing. They're not those people who are bedbound. bound. Right. Um, those people were not enrolled in these studies. In your practice, now that you're mentioning, if we think someone is end stage and they're, they're not talking much, they're more bed bound, are you just pulling these medications? Yeah, I, I, I'm doing a huge medication debridement. Like okay. I'm going in there with <laughs> medication debridement scalpel, just knocking these off. Because what we're worried about there is weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and other symptoms like GI distress and like these medicines cause that. So I am removing anything that could be associated with that. Cause I'm much more worried at that point about weight loss than a, you know, three point improvement on a 70 point scale. Okay. Now the, the choosing wisely recommends that you check in at least by 12 weeks to make sure we're assessing for all these things we've just been talking about and then deciding if you want to keep these medications. Is that what you do in your practice more or less? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, in my practice, I, I think of these medications as a red herring. Just don't, don't, don't focus. This is not what caregivers need. This is not what patients need. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's important to reassess whether or not they work and, you know, one or two months, I think thinking about let's, let's, t- if we're going to use it, let's titrate it out to an effective dose of you know, 10 milligrams. And if there's side effects, stop it. But don't get in the trap that the only thing that we can do as clinicians is treat this pharmacologically. Yeah. Because it doesn't work very well. And when you talk to patients, when you talk to family members, when you talk to caregivers, and what you see in this case is I'm going to diagnose you with a really bad disease. And then three months is the next time they see a physician or a clinician, NP. Like, can you imagine if that was cancer? I'm going to diagnose you with metastatic lung cancer. Oh, and I'll see you in three months. Okay. That wouldn't happen. This is where you involve your interdisciplinary team. um, And if you identify so needs where your social worker can be helpful. Um, I, you know, I think the social worker can really provide a lot of high contact and emotional support and uh, kind of do an evaluation of if there's any home services, adult day programs, uh, PACE programs that they qualify for and be supportive to the caregiver and the patient. What What is a PACE program? Is that... So a PACE program is a program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. That 
unfortunately, at this point, Mrs. Quill doesn't qualify. She needs to be nursing home eligible. And typically, those patients live at home and they're picked up a few times a week to and brought to a day center where they get medical care, medications, uh, activities, and things like that. But it can be an option to keep people who would otherwise live in a nursing home in their home if they have a good home environment. Yeah. Paul, do we have that in Philadelphia? That sounds great. <laughs> no, we we have uh, home health aides that we can sign folks up for that don't actually, it's not worth getting into. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's, let's move on because uh, I want to, I want to kind of keep an eye on the time, which I'm terrible at doing, but why don't we start talking about some of the behaviors that I, I heard Miss, Miss Quill became, uh, quite unruly a little bit down the line. Can you tell us about that, Leah? Sure. So a year later, Mrs. Quill is now living in a memory care residential facility. Um, she's been falling quite a bit and she's having difficulties with bathing and dressing herself. So there's a, an aid that helps her. And she's frequently having verbal and physical outbursts when she's frustrated or scared, especially at night. Um, the nursing home, the, the nursing assistants have been asking her doctor, that's you, uh, if you can prescribe something to help calm her down. Uh, he asks, Mr. Mr. Dahl is there with his mom, and he asks about Tylenol PM and clonazepam, which he's taken before when he's anxious. What do you think, Eric? I'm probably not going to say, yeah, let's go for it. Um, uh, <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think this puts, I mean, this is one of the most frustrating thing as, you know, uh, clinicians, again, whether it be MDs, NPs, social workers, <laughs> is that we're not at these residential facilities. We often are not talking to them. They're facing this. Caregivers are facing this. And um, I think everybody is looking for an easy solution. And unfortunately, there is no easy solution. I always think about it as like my nine-year-old. He, well, I, I also, so I get frustrated. I get angry. I get scared. Um, there is no drug that's going to fix that for me. So why do we think this person with dementia, there is going to be a drug that's going to fix that for them? And why would we want to medically treat that that feeling scared with some type of medication without actually first actually figuring out what's going on. Now, if they're like severe hallucinations that are distressing, I think that is a reasonable place to think about like antipsychotics to help with the hallucinations. Outside of that, um, you know, the, the case that always comes back to my mind, Cashback, I was, I was, I was briefly an intern at Cashback, <laughs> is um, I had a patient who, um, became agitated, was trying to punch and hit the nurses, and I was asked to actually start some some type of medication, an antipsychotic, to help with that. Um, decided to actually just walk over there and, and see him. He was blind. The nurses were trying to put in a Foley catheter. Oh, Nobody told him what was going on. So his bad behavior is just a normal reaction <laughs> to, to the situation. So I think just understanding these people are living in their realities. They're trying to experience the world and, and communicate what they're feeling. It may not be in a way that we think are like good behaviors, but they're communicating something. Our job is to figure out what's, how, to, how to communicate with them and um, figure out what may be causing these things that we're labeling as bad behaviors. So Eric's talking about the DICE approach, which uh, talks about how we can address some of these really 
stressful behavior, stressful for patients and caregivers. So the D is describe. The caregiver describes the problematic behavior. And you're thinking about the context, the social and physical environment, sensory impairment, like uh, Eric's patient who's blind or many of our patients who have hearing impairments and it's nighttime, their hearing aids aren't in. I is investigate. The provider investigates possible causes of problem behavior, pain, uh, we talked about medical conditions, psychiatric comorbidities, poor sleep, or loss of control. C is create. So providers, caregivers, and the team collaborate to implement a treatment plan. And this includes all members of the team so they feel heard. I think a big problem is that the on-the-ground workers, the nursing assistants, can feel maybe like we're not hearing the really distressing behaviors that they're dealing with. Um, so I think it helps to have a, a team meeting where you, you show them that you hear the behaviors and that you have a plan so that they can follow some steps that are outlined when the the behaviors come up. And then E is evaluate. The provider evaluates whether the interventions have been successful or safe. Yeah, that I actually there we have had a couple tricky patients uh, in the in the hospital at Cashlack and my team was telling like the patient kept getting put in restraints overnight and when my team we got the nurse we got the charge nurse and the nurse told us the behaviors that she was having we talked with the charge nurse we got we figured out a plan moved the patient closer into a different uh room near a window and uh had a one to one and we were able to keep the patient out of restraints and you know so it is it is that sort of thing where it just took like it had been going on for a couple of days and I'm finally like, we got to get to the bottom of this. Let's just go talk to the whole team and figure this out. And it, and it worked. So the dice approach, I didn't know what it was at the time, but uh, yeah. What's really helpful is having uh, somebody sit at the bedside, but you know, the balance of that is that it's expensive. It's somebody's time. And I think that's often why restraints get placed and medications get ordered mm -hmm. So we're facing really difficult logistic challenges at hospitals and at nursing homes. Uh, how do you how do you see the challenge about when people are asked to put on restraints for safety and? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's critical, especially if if you're trying to teach med students and interns, like go see the patient, figure out what's actually going on. In addition to dice, I use the the ABC approach. So, what was the behavior? accurately describe the behaviors, the D and dice, what was the consequence of the behavior? So for instance, like if I get called that somebody's wandering and that's why I should use like antipsychotics, like what's the consequences of walking? Like sometimes it's nothing. Like let them walk. Um, uh, think about other ways we can actually like prevent that person actually leaving the hospital. But that's, that's not a consequence I'm really that worried about. And what was the antecedent? So that's the A. What came right before the behavior? Was it they were trying to put in a Foley catheter? Was it they're trying to give this person, especially in a, in a nursing home, like their daily showers? Like, do they really need daily showers? <laughs> How else? Um, and really trying to individualize this care. So if always happens at night and the patient's not going to sleep, like learn a little bit more about the patient. Ha have they always worked a night shift? Like you may face an uphill battle if you're trying to convince that patient to go to sleep at night when they've never gone to sleep their whole night. Nothing is going to fix that problem except we have to fix the environment and ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting. I, I come from a nursing home background before I went to medical school, and I actually worked in facilities that had sort of secure dementia units. And I feel like the skilled nursing facilities were actually far more progressive than the hospitals that I've been in, in terms of the use of chemical restraints and physical restraints. That was a catastrophic failure in a nursing home. And now it, it feels, I won't say it's the first thing we reach for in acute care settings, but I see it used with far more aplomb than I would in a skilled nursing facility where you just, you just don't do that. You adjust the environment, you meet the unmet need. Like that's, that's how you prevent falls and prevent agitation. Yeah, because they are heavily regulated on that, and we're not in the hospital. So, <laughs> right. like, we see antipsychotics used for sleep in like the, for sleep, not in like uh, agitation, but like <laughs> right. oh, let's do a little quintyping twenty five to help this person go to sleep. There's no evidence for that. So sometimes we we jump a little bit too quickly to some of these medications. Can I ask you why we're so worried about these medications? Yeah, so... <laughs> a little underhand pitch there. <laughs> we're, we're just going to repeat exactly what we said for the anticholinergics is, uh, like, the evidence of their effectiveness is actually relatively small. When we look at any medicines, so when we look at antipsychotics, evidence that when they do work, the evidence that how effective they are is actually kind of marginal, I would say. And they come at significant risk for cardiovascular events, increased risk for death. So there's a black box warning on them. Uh, a recent JAG study showing increased risk for aspirations. Um, there may be confounding issues with that, but I, I kind of believe it. Like we're the goal for these agents is often sedating. So what happens when people are sedated? They they don't protect their airway as much. So that's antipsychotics, not very effective. When we look at other agents. Uh, whether it be like antidepressants, so citalopram, another one that's been studied, been shown to be helpful at higher doses to help with uh, these types of behaviors. And helpful is, again, these small increases in large scales helpful. Um, it's probably safer than uh, antipsychotics as there's no black box warning for death. Death is pretty bad outcome uh, majority of the time. <laughs> Uh, but unfortunately, even that, they used 30 milligrams in that study, and now we're, we're maxed out at 20 milligrams because yeah. of QTC issues. Um, a new drug that just came out, Nudexa, have you heard of that before? I have heard of it. I don't know cool. the, the generic for it. It's a mouthful, dextromethorphan and quinidine. So oh, like, yeah. Like, like Aricep <laughs> 23, we're going to take two incredibly cheap drugs we're going to combine them together and make a blockbuster so like dexamethorphan you can go to your pharmacy and get some dm you can get some tonic and you get you know you get your quinine um you got your tussin and tonic now you combine them together you get this new dex drug what happens actually is the dexamethorphan nobody really knows how it works maybe some nmda receptor issues but, you know, like if anybody's worked in ED, like teens use this to actually get their it's the disassociative hallucinogenic. Sure. The Tussin. Yeah, <laughs> the Tussin. Um, and then what the, the interesting I'm going to go wonky a little bit. The interesting thing about the quinidine is it um, it's a P450 uh, inhibitor. So it actually increases your blood levels of dexamethorphan. Oh, nice. So. You get a little bit more uh, teens, please earmuffs. Don't listen to this. Uh, you get a little bit more of that uh, disassociative hallucinogenic property. Um, initially, they used an ALS for pseudobulbar affect. Uh, so, and then they tested in dementia because there's not enough ALS patients out there to make a lot of money. So, dementia, big one. 
JAMA study showing small benefit. Um, so there was much hype around that. They didn't really talk about falls that much in that study, but there was a significant increased risk for falls. They didn't mention the, the statistical significant, but there was, I think it was a doubling of falls. And it, like somebody like, um, uh, not Hal Dahl, what's her name? Uh, Miss, oh, Mrs. Quill. Oh, yeah, Mrs. Quill. She's already falling. This is not a drug that we want to use in right. her until we actually get a little bit more evidence of its safety and efficacy. Okay. So no tussin and tonic, just <laughs> avoid it. So the so the AGS choosing wisely, uh, number two says no antipsychotics. Number four says no benzodiazepines or other sedative hypnotics in older people uh, as a first choice for insomnia, agitation, or delirium. Is there ever a time to use benzos or sedative hypnotics? Yeah, I mean, the, so Adamant. Will it make, we talk a lot about like paradoxical reactions to Ativan. Honestly, most people who get Ativan, they're going to get sleepy. You give in a big enough dose, they're going to get knocked out. So it's going to make your life that night a whole lot easier. <laughs> it's just going to make that next day that much harder. Because now, you know, if you've ever taken a benzo, that next day you're a little bit more foggy. If she's already scared, She's going to get more scared. Like she is going to try to figure out what's going on with her. Why does she feel so fuzzy? Somebody giving me stuff in my food. She may stop eating. It's not a great place for people who are not, who will never come off. And the one time that I do use it is near the very end of life. Mm -hmm. When my main goal is sedation, sometimes people's behaviors, um, sometimes people's agitation gets so bad near the very end of life where we do actually use these medications. But the primary goal is not to actually fix the delirium. Mm -hmm. The primary goal is to treat the symptoms of delirium, mainly through sedation. And I would reserve that for people, not people with moderate dementia, not people with severe, people with end-stage dementia at the very end of life receiving hospice care. What about uh, melatonin for patients admitted for delirium? There was a uh, a small article from the International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry from 2011 looked at that. What do you think about that? Yeah, so there was a, a study also, I think, in JAGS, too, Journal of American Geriatric Society out of Japan looking at melatonin to prevent delirium. Um, there was issues with that study because they screened a whole bunch of patients and they actually whittled it down to a smaller group. They did show, actually, a decrease in um, uh, delirium episodes uh, and I kind of, I kind of understand. Like, if you, the hospital is the worst place to try to get some sleep. Melatonin, relatively, uh, the side effects are relatively small. I think um, I don't use it to prevent delirium. If people are having difficulty sleeping in the hospital, it is often my first first go to. Not because we have a whole lot of evidence. None of our, we don't have any evidence in the hospital for any sleeping agents, but it has the least side effect profile. And it's worth trying for people who can't sleep in the hospital. Um, it's, you know, we use a lot of trazodone and other agents. There's no evidence for those either. So might as well pick the one that has the least side effect profile. Are you using a three or a five milligram? Do yeah, I, I use low dose. I use like the three. I, I don't I don't trust the tens. Like you go to Walmart right now, there's like a 10 milligrams of melatonin. And that's going to really screw up your sleep-wake cycle. Um, so... I use lower doses. There's 
there's probably that placebo effect too that's going on. People just want to feel like we're doing something. The better intervention is actually thinking about this as a um, system intervention. How can we actually make the hospital choir at night? Um, Reduce labs. We all have 4 a.m. labs ordered. Think critically about if that's necessary and the timing. So bringing in the lab techs, bringing in the nursing, and and nighttime vitals, like all of these things. Like this is the trying to create spaces where we actually are more – conducive to sleep and which will help with delirium yeah and i've seen mirtazapine used i I did want to bring this up i feel like there's almost a magical thinking that because it does everything right so it's (laughs) going to help with their sleep and it's going to improve their appetite and then also the depression that comes along with it is going to fix that too and it's i've seen it work 100 percent of the time all the time so i was wondering what your experience with mirtazapine was and if there was a role for it as well for both either sleep and then maybe we can move on to appetite after this and see if it sort of helps with that aspect as well yeah, it's that little magical drug. Um, uh, so my my main thoughts are it's it's a good antidepressant, good as any other antidepressant. It has a side effect profile that is worthwhile to think about when we're choosing which antidepressant to put someone on. Um, but if they're not depressed, there is no evidence that it's going to help with their appetite. There is no evidence that it's going to help with their sleep. With that said, like you start somebody on low-dose mirtazapine, like 7.5, 15, and what I hear from our geropsychiatrists is the sleepiness actually does better at the lower doses. Once you get into the 30, 45, they may not get that same benefit. So it may help them with their sleepiness. What it does as far as to your sleep, to your REM behaviors and all that, I have no idea. So I would just be cautious. It's not, it's not a great drug for people to be on if they're not depressed. And I would be very cautious to use it just for insomnia. Same thing with appetite. Unfortunately, it's it's generally something else is going on that's affecting their appetite. And trying one of these agents that really have never been shown to actually help outside of the setting of depression, um, uh, it is we're often dangling false hope to the patients mm-hmm. and their caregivers. Hmm. Is that our segue to the eating portion of this podcast? I think so, yeah. My my favorite topic. Um, so Mrs. Quill comes back in three in three years, um, and she's now completely incontinent. She's dependent on with all of her ADLs. She's having difficulty speaking, and um, Haldol is having a hard time understanding her. She's moved to a long term care nursing home, and her son is really worried about her appetite. A nursing assistant hand feeds her, but it takes an hour and she really eats less than 25% of her meals. She's coughing a lot after she eats and she was hospitalized twice in the last year for pneumonia. Her son asks how we can improve her appetite and if she should get a feeding tube. Eric, should she get a feeding tube? (laughs) Um, Great question. Uh, I, I think this is one of those things why it's incredibly important Instead of falling for that red herring trap, just focusing on drug therapies early on in the course of dementia, is actually preparing patients and their family members for this to happen very early on. So we're not just talking about this at the very end, that we're talking about the progression of the disease, which will inevitably include eating problems, swallowing problems, um, weight loss 
this is what we see near the very end of life. And it's not just like the very end of life. This is like the last year, year and a half with dementia. And actually including the patient in the discussion about kind of what they kind of would want. I would not focus so much on the PEG tubes because what we know about PEGs with uh, advanced dementia is that they don't improve nutrition, they don't improve weight, they don't improve things like pressure ulcers, they don't improve survival, uh, they don't improve any nutritional parameters like albumin, they don't actually prevent aspiration. So they, they don't do anything that we wish they did. And why do we even offer them? That is a great question. Um, uh, I've, I've actually uh, gone up and down. Initially, I said, why are we even offering these things? Like, we shouldn't even talk about it with our patients in the hospital because they're not effective. But then you realize we live in a fragmented healthcare system. And if we don't bring it up and talk to family members and patients about it, or at this point with advanced disease, family members, somebody else is. So I think it's actually important to bring it up as something that we don't do um, and how we wished that it would help. But what we would recommend are other options to help with um, their weight loss, to help with their swallowing problems, to help with feeding them. This is a really emotionally charged topic for families. Uh, The book I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Extreme Measures, Dr. Zitter has a passage about food. And we see this in the ICU. We see this in our outpatient clinics with our patients who have dementia. And she talks about how families see food as a major form of support, both physical and spiritual. And she talks about how the artificial calories from a feeding tube uh, feel like feel like versus a medical treatment, they kind of feel like love. They are Mm. showing their family that they love them and care for them and want to nourish them. So it's really charged. Would, would your position or the way that you approach this change at all? If say you had an advanced Parkinson's dementia where they require the sentiment for their swallowing for their, their uh, bradykinesia and we don't have a good IV alternative. So the only way to, uh, to administer it would be say through a peg tube. Is that something that would change that discussion? Um, it, it may. So when we talk about lack of evidence for peg tubes, we're talking about observational studies, not randomized control studies, observational studies around Alzheimer's disease. Um, I'm never going to say that pegs never work. If you look at ALS patients, there's pretty good evidence that it actually may help improve uh, the quality of life of patients with ALS if they want that type of intervention, potentially survival. For people with Parkinson's, we don't have a whole lot of um, evidence um, for peg tubes, what they do as far as survival. I would say that Cinnamon actually does a very bad job of helping with those muscles that help with swallowing. Okay. So um, it's not going to help people's swallowing problems. And when they get to the level where they're having significant swallowing problems and they're thinking about, you know, how to deliver these medications, things have not gone the way we hope with their disease. They're, they're progressing to their end stage. And I think it's important for family members to know is that these types of interventions like peg tubes may not prolong survival. They likely will not prevent aspiration. I, I think what's, what's helpful when we're talking to family members is 
just like feel the inside of your mouth right now, how moist it is, how much saliva is in there. They're producing a whole lot more saliva than honestly most individuals with dementia are taking in as far as fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole lot worse for you than like a, that can of ensure. Like there is a whole lot more bad bacteria in there. Um, and that's, we're not going to fix that with a peg tube. This, and going back, this is a disease that their brain is slowly deteriorating. Their brain has now failed to the point where they can no longer even manage to swallow. Eric, I wanted to ask you, so she's been hospitalized a couple of times at Cashlack and had some speech and swallow evaluations, and they recommended that she was NPO. Yeah. Uh, man, the amount of times I've seen this at Cashlack. Uh, so... <laughs> So it's hard. It's really hard for providers. Somebody comes in with uh, pneumonia from a nursing home. Uh, speech sees them the next morning to clear them to eat. They don't clear them. They say that they need to be NPO because they're aspirating on their bedside swallow exam. And now we're stuck. Now the decision is, oh, do we keep them NPO? Um, do we put in a peg tube? And that's a f- false decision. The decision isn't that. The decision is... Should we carefully hand feed this individual, even in the hospital, because they're going to be at risk for aspiration, even if we put in a peg tube? Or um, are there other reasons why we should think of a peg tube for this individual? And honestly, a vast majority of times, it's not. Mm -hmm. So that should make us think, okay, now's the time for a goals of care discussion with the family because their brain has deteriorated to the point that they can no longer swallow. And this is something that we did here in the hospital. We actually met with our speech therapists um, because this was happening. And uh, they felt like they had to say MPO because that's what us doctors wanted. Um, (laughs) And what they just wanted to tell us was just, can you just talk to the family members that we should accept this risk? Um, And we felt like, oh, my God, we can't not make them MPO because speech actually told us. So actually talking with your speech therapists and I just did this today with another patient, is um, making sure we're clear on the question. The question isn't, should this patient be MPO or not? The question is, what is the safest like diet for this individual, right. given these swallowing problems and given the overall goals of care? Yeah, I, I think there's also a third option in there, that if they're admitted and they're delirious, maybe we shouldn't be doing a speech or a swallow study in, in acute delirium. Maybe we should treat first and then repeat? Or I think that's a Brilliant thing. I think um, it's okay if they see them early on. Um, you know, getting people nutrition early on is probably important with delirium, although not a lot of evidence. But definitely repeating it frequently. Like having a that that speech therapist should be a close member of your team at that point. I wanted to just bring up because uh, we Lee and I had talked about Dr. Thomas Fanukin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but ah, probably he, not. If history's any yeah. <laughs> He, so he's a geriatrician from John Hopkins, and he gives a lecture on misinformation in nutrition. Have you ever heard it? It's, it's no. fantastic. No. His, so his talk, he talks about a couple things that I think are really interesting. So Dr. Finucane talks about uh, patients. He talks about a med student who was like lost in the woods for like six weeks, and they checked his albumin, and it was stone cold normal. And he says that when you – anorexic patients will often Wait. have normal albumin. But if you get these patients with advanced cancer, multimorbidity, there's inflammation, these patients, no matter how much you feed them, generally do not, the body is not ready to accept the nutrition. So he's, he's talking about those are patients like supplements and feeding tubes he doesn't recommend. 
And then he also talks about this thing called girth creep, which is a term that I just love. And he, and he talks about looking at pictures of the Last Supper and how the apostles and Jesus get progressively heavier and heavier as we've gone through time. <laughs> and that the perception of what is a normal weight is now so warped. He says in, in 1885, the average West Point graduate weighed 135 pounds. And now if you see a man weighing 135 pounds, you think they're underweight and something's wrong with them. So he was just talking, you know, just this, all this psychology and all this like sort of history, people, people are thinking and, and probably they're, they're thinking incorrectly about nutrition and malnutrition, what, what the definition is in some of these patients, like you're saying these patients, their brain is already deteriorated. So does feeding them matter when this is kind of the natural end of the life cycle? And then for, this is an adjacent topic patients with like advanced cancer, multimorbidity that have inflammatory states, they, they probably can't heal. So it's a brilliant talk and I'll send it, uh, I'll send you guys the link uh, to it, but I, I'm a huge fan of him. Yeah. I didn't mean, I think the asterisk always with these peg tubes, uh, because sometimes when we talk with like med students, they generalize peg tubes for everyone, like even in cancer, like head and neck cancer patients, they actually do a lot better with peg tubes because there is an isolated swallowing issue is that this, this cancer is blocking it. Mm -hmm. It's not that this, that you have this huge pro inflammatory state where they are just not metabolizing it. Same thing when we're talking about like dementia is like in Parkinson's disease, it, it gets, I it's, it's harder because what sometimes happens is they develop these swallowing problems earlier on in the course of dementia. Mm -hmm. And then like, I have to be honest, I have to be clear with the family members and the patients that I have uncertainty. I don't know whether are they more like the head and neck cancer patient or are they or like or the ALS patient or are they more like the advanced dementia patient and that, that I'm using also my clinical gestalt how bad their dementia is. Yeah. Outside of feeding tubes, the other two things that we often feel compelled to do are order nutritional supplements and thicken liquids. Ah. Oh. Two of my favorite subjects. So actually, I keep on getting boxes of Insure sent to me by someone. Like I, I am looking at a box of a case of Insure, and I have no idea what to do with it. So I actually put it, I put it outside, thinking Take the hint. Get, nobody's going to drink this, and they keep on disappearing. So somebody in our office really likes Insure. I, I hear it's but, good in a white Russian. You should try it <laughs> uh, with some quinidine. Really. Really, a, no evidence that they actually help with individuals with advanced dementia. When we're looking at nutritional supplements for people who are severely malnourished, there may be some some small evidence. Um, uh, it, it's probably better than like multivitamins, which has no evidence for anything. Um, Darn it! Uh, <laughs> but really, I, I, I would again. I think that's a red herring conversation. I think we should really focus on what's going on here when we're talking to family members about nutritional supplements because it's usually not that they're not taking enough in um it's that um they're they're not wanting any more food um that they're having swallowing problems that they're coughing when they're actually trying to take in um, things like uh, food or fluid and really having that the discussion about what to expect with advanced dementia as far as thick and liquids, um, man, like, so we did this, we actually sat down with our hospice team. We were, we were going to do a taste test uh, of uh, different diet consistencies because I thought, oh my God, like 
these pureed diets look absolutely disgusting. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna try these different diet consistencies, and we tried it. Turns out I love pureed diet. Like, <laughs> oh my god, it's delicious. Uh, however, on that pureed diet was was this can of like thickened liquids. Um, so we actually tried it, and everybody agreed that it was horrendous. So we decided, can we actually only drink thickened liquids for 12 hours? Because 1 in 12 nursing home patients are on thickened liquids. Like oh. It is incredibly common that we use these medications. So if they're doing it, we can definitely do it for 12 hours, right? So we tried it for 12 hours. Nobody was actually able to tolerate thickened <laughs> liquids for 12 hours. These are health. Like I'm 42 years old in my one-liner. I, my urine was never as dark. I had a splitting <laughs> headache. I was incredibly dehydrated. And again, I'm a healthy 42 year old. And your Why do we, and yeah, I'll even plummeted. Why do we think somebody who is 82 years old with advanced dementia can actually tolerate this? And so we have to think, okay, but there must be some evidence that it actually works. When we looked into it, there was really none. Wow. There's really no evidence that it prevents important outcomes like aspiration pneumonia. There's actually one randomized control trial, which really made me excited, but it really didn't show any any patient-centered outcomes of importance that these these commonly used treatments for dysphagia actually have any meaningful benefit in people with dementia and Parkinson's disease. And it came at a risk of dehydration, UTIs. Um, so really pause. Um, and we started something called, we, we call the hashtag thicken liquid challenge is people trying to record themselves doing, taking these thickened liquids for 12 hours and seeing what it looks like. And the really cool thing is the intern who was on our service at that time actually did the thicken liquid challenge. She did a video of it. And then she wrote a JAMA IM article, um, on, uh, the lack of evidence for thickened liquids for people with dementia. I, I want our listeners to send uh, send videos to the curbsiders at gmail.com of yourselves doing the uh, thick and liquid challenge and we'll we'll make a super cut of it and we'll uh, we'll put it out there on our YouTube channel. Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag thick and liquid challenge. Yeah. And if you want some inspiration, you can actually look at it. It's on YouTube, hashtag thick and yeah. liquid challenge. And the cool thing is a like people from across the U.S. did this. Like we had speech therapists did this to help promote like dysphagia understanding. We had people from Australia try this. It was really great to see. And I, that's why part of why I love social media is that it really breaks these geographic boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Leah, do we have anything else? Are we kind of coming down to the end here? I think we're coming down to the end. So maybe... Uh, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Stuart, do we have anything on social media that we, we need to address? Um, and while he's looking, Paul, did you have any last-minute questions? Yeah, this is, uh, this is supplement adjacent. I don't think we talked um, about – often the question I get is about appetite stimulants, and I know the medical students and the residents love uh, dronabinol. Well, not maybe not for themselves, but they always suggest it. <laughs> and Meg AC here suggested megestrol acetate thrown out there. Is there any utility in any of the appetite um, – I know the answer, I think, but and you told me the appetite stimulants for patients who are maybe not quite ready for for the peg conversation, but mom and dad just don't seem to be eating as much as they used to. Yeah, so uh, great question. Yeah, unfortunately, for a wide variety of diseases, there's really no evidence for appetite stimulants. Um, 
as far as uh, patient, meaningful patient outcomes, not, not just a, a subtle weight increase, but like helping with some of their sarcopenia, which is oftentimes the things that, that we worry about. Because sure, some of these medications may help a little bit with improving a, amount of fat, but medications like Mies actually come with uh, a cost uh, and a risk, you know, whether it be DVT, it's a progesterone. Um, so we tend to avoid Mies. Drodabinol, I wish, I wish people liked taking Drodabinol as much as smoking marijuana. <laughs> um, but honestly, when we talk to patients, they, they, they don't get a lot of benefit from Drodabinol. Studies are also eh on whether or not it actually helps. And when you talk to people who who've had benefits before getting the munchies on marijuana, it's actually using the, the whole, the, all of marijuana. Dramabinol is just one component, the THC, THC component, and there's hundreds of components to marijuana. Um, not that I'm advocating for marijuana. I, I also work at a federal facility. So, uh, uh, cash lack v federal, uh, <laughs> cash lack. Um, so, um, but I, I would also say that um, you know, for some patients, they, they may get um, benefit from that. But it's probably also that placebo. They feel like they're doing something that they often feel passionate about and that may make them have more of an appetite. Other than that, I don't really recommend any of the other um, appetite stimulants for, for the majority of diseases, not just advanced dementia. I, I like how choosing wisely spelled it out with megase or megestrol. They they said doesn't imp- doesn't improve quality of life or survival. There's fluid retention, thrombotic events. The number needed to treat for weight gain, but no like meaningful clinical benefit. The number is twelve for the number needed to treat. The number needed to harm is twenty three patients will cause one death. So if you treat twenty three patients with megestrol, you you can you can cause one death with it. That's yeah. horrible. And you might That's get two, and you would get two patients would gain weight but have no improvement in quality of life or survival. So those numbers I, I wish I had like numbers like that for every treatment that didn't work and I could just like <laughs> off the cuff say it to patients. I, I just I love that. It's just right in the so you gotta look up the AGS choosing wisely, which will will link. It has a lot of fun facts like that that you can share with your patients. <laughs> Tons of fun. That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so go, going back to social media, I don't see a lot of questions that weren't already addressed. Um, there was a couple of questions that probably would be answered by the osteoporosis lecture and about imaging in uh, dementia. But I, I think that was uh, discussed before on a, our previous episode, was it not? I think it yeah. was. Yeah, I so think we so. can refer then yeah. to those. So why don't we ask Eric, did you have any favorite take-home points from this episode that you wanted to, to give to the audience? Yeah, okay. Starting from the beginning, when you have that patient, even if there's something documented in the EMR that they have a diagnosis, always assume nobody told them or they did not remember their diagnosis. So take time to deliver that serious news, explore their emotional reaction to it, and then um, talk to them about the progression of the disease, what to expect. Um, don't fall. That's my first one. The second one is don't fall for the red herring of just focusing on pharmacological therapies for dementia because at best they're marginally effective um, and at worst they cause uh, side effects. Uh, the, we can still do a lot as clinicians, as physicians, as far as communicating what to expect with the disease, being a supportive um, a sounding board to patients and their caregivers, helping with behaviors. Uh, the Third point is for behaviors, non-pharmacological 
clearly before any pharmacological therapy and um, use the pharmacological therapies for as short a time as possible, any of them. So even if you use some of the newer ones like um, uh, Tussin and Tonic or Nugexa, <laughs> use it for the shortest amount of time as possible. Um, none of these have any long-term uh, efficacy trial, trial data. And then the very last thing around feeding, so the fourth point is, if you're getting that patient where there's an you know, NPO uh, recommendation from uh, speech or you're thinking about appetite stimulants or you're thinking about a PEG tube, whether or not it should, should be done or you're just thinking it shouldn't be done, like that is a time you should pause and think, okay, we need to have a discussion with our family members. We need to have a goals of care discussion. Even if I don't bring up PEG tube, it is a reason that I need to have this discussion with a family member about mm-hmm. where we're heading from here because all paths are not passive, most people are hoping for. And they're leading to worsening functional decline and death. Yeah. Do you have a more positive take-home point you'd like to end with after that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the, the positive is... Uh, <laughs> no, I, no, no, I think it's really important. I think yeah, we can get point. so worked up about the lack of things that we can't do. Like, the la- I mean, I remember as a med student, we like... we. Sorry, any neurologists who are listening, like you used to make fun of the neurologists because all they had was aspirin. Um, uh, <laughs> true, it's true. Um, however, there is so much that we could do as clinicians, not just referring to like Alzheimer's Association, which is incredibly important that we do and making sure that they follow up with that referral. But family members are eager for our help and advice. They don't want to just see us six months after we diagnose them with this illness. They need help earlier on. We can educate them about this disease. We can be, again, a support for them. We can, if they're having behaviors, going through the DICE framework. There's so much that we can do. So don't feel like there's, you know, throwing your hands up in the air. Like, I mean, sometimes I do feel like doing that. (laughs) But remembering that that you are incredibly well-trained for this. Um, there, There could obviously be more training, but there's a lot that you can do. Beautifully said. That's uh, that will allow me to segue to I was going to plug for you the Jerry Powell podcast which I've been listening to it it is do you guys do it weekly it seems it's several shows a month it seems like I'm not sure if you're yeah. on a weekly but yeah we try to do a weekly um and uh, I I love it cuz you get to talk to great people we actually had Jessica Zitter on on the podcast and um it's it's great just to learn from a, a bunch of folks so we try to do weekly but again it's a hobby so yeah. We do our best. Yes. So that's the Jerry Powell podcast. They talk about a lot of topics that will supplement tonight's show, and I highly recommend that you check it out. And uh, Eric, Eric's partner, Alex, uh, on the show, is he sings songs at the beginning, which uh, I hmm. think we're going to ask Stuart to start doing that, uh, if you oh, don't mind. <laughs> I think you'll just lose Paul completely if that's the case. He'll just uh, send you his resignation letter. Okay. Well, uh, Eric, you have a burrito waiting for you from what I'm told. So we, we <laughs> yes. need to let you go. <laughs> and ta- burrito and tonic. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm sure. And some marinol. Yeah. And Leah has to go beat somebody up at her body pump class. So we're going to let you yeah. both go. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I want to be very honest. I absolutely love your show. Um, I actually had to take the, the boards, the geriatric medicine boards. And I use your show to study because there's so much great geriatric content on it. Um, Thank you. 
Well, uh, we're gonna have to take some. We're gonna have to do some more crossover episodes, Jerry Powell and the Curbsiders, and, and do some more geriatric topics. Oh uh, yeah, it could be like a weird sitcom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jerry side. <laughs> the Jerry Siders. Yeah, that's something like that. Yeah, I like it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I love that trademark. Or the Curb Pal. <laughs> This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you Jerry Pal. <laughs> Sorry, this has been an episode of the Jerry Siders. That's uh, right, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Quite delicious. <laughs> uh, you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Sign up for our weekly mailing list to get a PDF copy of our show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. This will help other people discover the show, which helps us get more audience and get better guests and make more shows. So please do that. And you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can tell us what you love or hate about the show, recommend a future topic. You know the drill. Until next time. Oh, no, wait. I need to plug our social. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Hey, Paul, you know, the longer I know you, the more disparaged you look on camera. (laughs) That probably has to do with how long I've known you for, I would imagine. (laughs) And I remain Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Good night, Paul. Is cash lack just purely because the the joke around lacking cash, or did you have another reason you used yeah. cash lack? It's it's my grandmother's. It's my my paternal grandmother's maiden name is Cash Lack. Uh, wow, I had no idea. I Deep don't think cut. Ever mentioned that on one of your podcast. Yeah, at least I don't know if of- I have. I uh, it comes up a lot in in pre recording. <laughs> little peek behind the curtain.